My name is Claire Press, and this is Wardrobe Crisis, the podcast that unzips fashion's issues. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ah, are we starting? <laughs> we are seeing a kind of almost Zoolander-esque caricature of how excessive fashion can be. Our look shifting was like 16 to 20 hours a day. I would work like 450 hours in a month and making only $6. Creativity is one of the most powerful things that humans have. We underestimate the power of beauty and the power of humour. These are qualities that connect people and connectivity is a really potent thing right now. Don't point a finger, impart knowledge and information instead. Plus size modelling can go suck it. Um, (laughs) It's our job as designers to explore and discover beauty everywhere. So your voice is crucial and powerful in the supply chain. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. We are so hot right now. It's getting hard. My parents feel that this is a waste of time. I don't go away because everything is just fine. This week, we get to hang out with Tim Flannery, the internationally acclaimed scientist, explorer, and conservationist. Tim is also the man behind Australia's Climate Council, which is a not for profit organisation that provides independent info about climate change to the public. So this episode was recorded in September at the Heron Island Research Centre on the Great Barrier Reef. And I went there on this voyage of discovery to learn about how the reef is doing and to take a kind of science crammer course with all kinds of people interested in activism in this area. Our group included the very inspiring environmentalist Anna Rose, look her up, business people, a new generation of government changemakers in the form of City of Sydney councillors, Jess Scully and Jess Miller. Go Jess, she just got made the Deputy Lord Mayor. She's rad. There was also a poet, an artist, Heidi from the band Cloud Control was with us, the freediver Julia Wheeler, and also Laura Wells, who I interviewed in the first episode of the Wardrobe Crisis podcast. And if you haven't heard that one yet, it's well worth a listen. So, Tim... When the mighty David Attenborough introduced Tim Flannery in December of 2015 at a talk at RSA House in London, he called him extraordinary, a great authority, and he said, I've watched what he's done with admiration for a long time. Tim is the author of a whole library of books, including 1998's The Future Eaters and 2005's seminal book The Weathermakers. I've just finished his follow-up to The Weathermakers. It's called Atmosphere of Hope. And Tim describes that book as an uncompromising look at where we are now on climate change. A bit of context. Greenhouse gases collect in the atmosphere like a thickening blanket, trapping the sun's heat and causing the planet to warm up. Protecting the world from very substantial changes in climate requires keeping global temperature rise to no more than 2 degrees C above pre-industrial levels. Even two degrees means substantial sea level rise, increased heat waves and extreme weather events, and coupled with ocean acidification, a nightmare for the world's coral reefs. In 2015, at the Paris summit, nearly 200 countries agreed on the need to cut greenhouse gas emissions and keep warming below two degrees, or better still, below 1.5 degrees. Okay, so here's some not-so-fun facts. We're already committed, thanks to previous and current emissions, the effects of which will be felt in the future, to two degrees. Now, the Trump administration has announced it will pull out of the Paris Accord. 
The US produces about a quarter of the world's emissions, but Australia is no angel either. Australia is one of the largest emitters per capita, and it's actually the 13th largest greenhouse gas emitter in the world. We're also, hey-ho, massive miners of fossil fuels. The emissions from Australia's coal resources alone, if fully developed, would consume two-thirds of the world's remaining carbon budget. So, of course, we'll switch to renewables, right? Makes sense. Someone please tell our Prime Minister, Mr Turnbull. Now, the science is, of course, complicated. But Tim Flannery is brilliant at decoding the big issues, and it's wonderful to have him on the show. It's also particularly timely in Australia, because this week has been all about Stop Adani, a massive protest movement involving hundreds of groups, big ones from Greenpeace to Get Up, and grassroots ones who've come together to protest. Adani's proposed Carmichael Mine in North Queensland is right next to the Barrier Reef. It would be Australia's largest coal mine and one of the biggest coal extraction projects in the world. The links to global warming are obvious, but it also has direct impact on the reef through dredging to expand the shipping terminal at Abbott Point and things like coal dust pollution of the reef itself. Please check out the show notes for the full story. So what's all this got to do with fashion? Heaps! I could tell you about the Stop Adani earrings that Laura Wells bought from House of Dizzy, or about We Are Handsome swimwear collections inspired by Save the Reef. I could talk to you about how designers from Alexander McQueen to Gucci have been inspired by the beauty of the world's coral reefs. Or I could talk about how fashion is a major global polluter, and actually a significant emitter too. And I got this quote from Fashionista, from a story written by Whitney Bork, who writes great stuff, by the way, and I'll share some links. But she wrote, the best number we have is about 5% of global greenhouse gas emissions come from the fashion sector. That puts it on a par with, if you want to compare it to a country, Russia. But I'm going to let Tim do the talking. Tim, we're here on Heron Island on the Great Barrier Reef where the University of Queensland Research Centre is doing great work investigating how climate change is impacting on corals. I guess my first question is, how are they doing? Well, the corals aren't doing very well at all. They are probably the most vulnerable group of organisms on the planet. And part of what makes them vulnerable is that they have very narrow temperature tolerances for the little algae that feed them in their bodies. Uh, secondly, they live in the water and it's really hard to get away from an underwater heat wave. You know, on land we can sweat and whatever, and lower our temperature. In the water, organisms can't do that. And coral also just have to sit there in the sun, they can't move. So they, they are really a vulnerable group and they're not doing well at all. In fact, there is debate in the scientific community about you know, whether we, if the warming continues, whether we'll have coral reefs in future. I'm reading your powerful book, Atmosphere of Hope, right now, your follow-up to The Weathermakers, 10 years later. The word hope is in the title, and yet in that book, when you're talking about the fate of the reefs, you actually refer to them as being part of a living, dead ecosystem. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, unfortunately for many of the reefs that we're familiar with today, including the Great Barrier Reef, we're seeing really big impacts if you go back to the wonderful photographs that were taken at the end of the 19th century by Saville Kent, one of the great researchers here, you can go back to the very same place he stood and there was a vibrant living reef photographed exposed at low tide. Today it's just a rubble field. And again and again you see the same thing. So up till 2012, about half the coral had died and we've seen big impacts since then. Probably another 20 to 30% have died since then. So the reef is really in serious trouble. 
Before I get you to decode a little bit more of the science around exactly why this is happening, I want to just address the question that may be in some of our listeners' heads right now, which is, okay, this stuff is important, but what's it got to do with fashion? And I said that to you before, Tim, when I said, is it fair to say you're not a man of fashion? Well, I'm, I'm sadly not, not a man of fashion at all. Ask my wife. She despairs at times. But I tend to wear things until they fall apart, which is terrible. Which is good eco stuff, though, because you're adding longevity to your garments. Yeah, no disposability. True. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I do take care of my body. I try to do that, although I'm not perfect at doing that. And I love that line from the ancient Roman writers. I don't know whether you remember the, the Gracchi brothers who basically saved Rome at a certain point in their history. Their mother was well known as the least fashionable matriarch in Rome, always wearing boring stuff. And when anyone ever asked her why she didn't dress up in all the jewellery she could so easily afford, she said, my children are my ornaments. That is amazing and beautiful. I've never yes. heard it. Yeah. So that's always impressed me. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Let our children be our ornaments. Yeah. But I mean, the obvious answer to why we're addressing this when we're talking about that jumping off point of the fashion space is that so much of Australia's style language is deeply embedded in this idea of our pristine natural environment, our amazing beaches and our crystal clear waters. I mean, there's countless magazine spreads that have been photographed so beautifully on our beaches and so many of our swimwear and surfwear labels are absolutely inspired by and inextricably linked to our coastal lifestyle and our natural environment. I think Australia is sort of defined that way globally. It's not just fashion, it's our food exports are often, uh, the clean green label is a very important part of that. Our sporting teams are sort of also seen, I guess, as coming from this healthy land where we're very sporting and we're outdoors all the time and, and so forth. And of course, people know about our biodiversity, which is very, well, it's unique really in the world. So yeah, all of that, it does define us. And yet somehow as a nation, we aren't giving as much attention as we should to the damage that's being done to these ecosystems. You talk about that kind of disconnect in your writing. Mm. And you mentioned the clean green image that Australia is known for. Mm. And yet what's happening in our ecosystems is less than that. I wonder if you'd like to come back to that question of exactly why our coral reefs are imperiled. And just explain a little bit more about what are the challenges we're facing with climate change, particularly with regards to the ocean? Sure. Well, look, you know, uh, going back to those wonderful photographs taken in the late 19th century, you know, that was a barrier reef that was growing in the absence of any agriculture on land, so humans weren't mucking up catchments that flow into the reef at that point. And it was, of course, long before there was any coral bleaching. What's happened since then is that we've seen very large-scale development up and down the coast of Queensland. So people have been building ports and doing lots of dredging. They've been um, planting sugarcane in the hinterland and all of the pesticides and herbicides that are used on those crops make their way into the reef. And so that's been damaging. But until 1976, that was probably the most substantial damage. We hadn't seen climate change really kick in. And I remember visiting the reef just out of Cairns in um, 1972 and swimming in this wonderland and not at all appreciating that this was the only time I would ever see the reef before bleaching started to have an impact. Yeah, and having come back year after year and seen the damage just get more severe until this year we've had two bleaching events in a row in 2016 and 2017 Uh, which have devastated areas that up until now had escaped really substantial damage. I get really concerned about that. 
We are, as I said, having this interview on the extraordinary Heron Island, which is in the southern part of the Barrier Reef. The Barrier Reef is giant. I can't even get my head around the numbers. Can you tell oh, us? It's about, it, well, it stretches for about 2,400 kilometres, I think, when you, know, you straightened out all the wiggles in it. It's about half the size of Germany. It's one of the most extraordinarily biodiverse regions on the planet. And it's part of an ecosystem that's at least 50 million years old. It's been surviving that long. Uh, and we are seeing within my single lifetime the destruction of that ecosystem. It tells you how fast we're changing the planet. And the mechanisms by which it's changing are quite interesting, if I could go on and talk about the yes, details. Please. You know, the coral organism is this extraordinary being, really, entity, that is, it's a coral polyp. So there's, there's a little polyp like a sea anemone living in a, a skeleton. And inside that polyp, there are algae. So those algae actually feed the polyp most of the time, and they're what gives the polyp its colour. And the relationship's almost like a good marriage or a good business partnership, you know, where, where both partners are putting something in, it works wonderfully. So the polyp protects the algae and the algae feeds the polyp. But as temperatures rise, the ability of that algae to photosynthesise and therefore make food starts to degrade. So after a while in hot water, the polyp works out that it's costing the polyp more to keep the algae in its cells than it's getting in return. It's like a bad business partnership. Mm -hmm. So the polyp has developed the ability to expel the algae out of its cells, which it does. Now, in the absence of global warming, you might get hot water that'll last for a day or a couple of days or a heat wave, maybe a week at the most. And that's fine because the algae can survive that long and then it takes all of those algae back into the little polyp and life is fine again. But with climate change, we've seen these really long undersea heat waves that go for six weeks. And if the polyp doesn't get food for six weeks, it dies. So that's what bleaching is, the expelling of the algae so that the coral is just white and then a slow starvation to death. Is white coral dead coral? Well, it doesn't have to be. You know, it could be just that the coral has expelled the algae and if they come back in time, it'll all be fine again. But um, if it goes six weeks or so, then the coral is dead. And, and that's it... what you're seeing. Can you tell us about some of the sites that you've seen in this underwater garden that's yeah. been delighting us for centuries? Yeah, so I remember going to Opal Reef uh, last year off Port Douglas. And you know, that is one of the most pristine and beautiful reefs. It's right on the drop-off, the edge of the reef, where you've got cool water not very far away, usually, down there. And so those reefs have survived well. But just before we'd arrived, a huge underwater heat wave, like 100 metres deep, blew in into the Great Barrier Reef and just sat against it. And over time, caused bleaching and then killed this coral. Now, when we were there, I remember just swimming over fields of this white coral. And I could see the coral was still alive, but if things continued, it would be in serious trouble. I went back a few months later and the coral had died. So there was a field of white skeletons really. And uh, we went back after that and the coral had started to get this greenish film over it, which is algae taking over and then starting to break down because it, that's what happens. It breaks down, the algae gets thicker, the coral breaks into a rubble. And that's a very inhospitable environment for new coral to settle on. So normally what you need for the coral reef to regenerate is a big storm event which will blow all of that coral and algae away. A firm base is recovered and if there's any coral nearby which are reproducing, they can reseed the reef. But that's a, a process that takes many years and you know, several decades. And to some do. of those corals are ancient. How old are they? Well, some of them are hundreds of years old. Some of them are more recent, but they, 
the oldest are centuries old. So, you know, you see that sort of damage and then you see, well, you know, we're getting two bleaching events over two years now. So even if the coral started to recover, it would be knocked back again. And that's what really is worrying scientists. What percentage of the reef have we lost? Well, somewhere between 70 and 80% of it is lost. I've heard that before this moment, but when I first heard it, which was, you know, only the other day preparing for this trip, I didn't know. I think so many people don't know the extent of it. I'd heard about the bleaching, but 80 or 90%. I yeah. mean, it's devastating. It is. It is. Um, within my lifetime, even in the best scenario, it will never be the reef that I saw in 1972 when I dived on it. How does that make you feel? Uh, I feel like a colossal failure because... Uh, I'm a scientist, I'm aware of these things. I saw the reef, you know, and I've been trying to create conditions where people can address that and do something, but it's not been enough. So I don't know what I'm going to say to my children in future when they ask me, you know, what happened. I've got a four-year-old. Uh, you know, what will I say to him when he grows up in the reef is if it does die? I don't know. There's another very, I mean, there are many powerful parts of this book but all of Tim's books and we will in the show notes share details of a reading list which you can follow up on and I would urge you to I'm addicted now I'm going to make you sign this book I'm <laughs> not going to sell it on eBay <laughs> not even to raise money for the climate the it, to be honest with <laughs> but there's another powerful passage in this particular book Atmosphere of Hope in which you write we need to do nothing to see this happen, and that is in the context of watching our reefs fall away. But you're right, we need to do nothing to see this happen. It will simply occur if we go along with business as usual. And Australians alive today will see it. And then you go on to say, what happens to future generations? What will they think of us who allowed such a world to be? Mm. That makes me cry. We've yeah, got to do something about it, it haven't we? I mean, we've we got do. to do something about we this do. whole picture. Yeah, exactly. If and we, it's not as if it's so difficult to do. Well, that's what I've got to come to, because obviously we're painting a fairly dramatic picture of loss and decline, which is hard to listen to. Yeah. But we're talking about hope, and yeah. we are here with the Climate Council trying to figure out ways that we can communicate solutions or potential solutions. Tim, what can we do? Where should we begin? We've already made a beginning. We are now at a point where... We can generate electricity more cheaply from solar and wind than we can from coal, which is great. Within the next 10 years, it looks like we'll be able to build and generate electricity from solar and wind cheaper than we can just operate old coal-fired power plants. And just to clarify, global warming is a result of... Yeah, it's burning all that coal, it's burning all that oil. I mean, if, you, if people had some sense of the vast volumes of fossil fuels we're using every day, I think they'd be horrified. You know, what, we, can you give us a sense of how much that is? Well, you know, we, we put about 50 gigatons of CO2 equivalents into the atmosphere. And one way of thinking about it is to say, well, how many people would we need to put into the atmosphere to make 50 gigatons? You'd need to put the whole population of the planet into the atmosphere twice over to make up that number. Another way of thinking about it is, well, how many trees would we need to plant just to take 10% of that volume out of the atmosphere? You'd need to cover an area the size of the United States in forest to do that. So we're talking about these huge numbers, which is why we must really phase out fossil fuel use in the next couple of decades. To what extent are fossil fuels the culprit when we're looking at pumping out levels of CO2 into the atmosphere? There are about nine-tenths of the problem currently. Yeah, somewhere around that. There's Some comes from agriculture and other, other sources, but the great majority is really from the burning of fossil fuels for various purposes. 
So Tim, just to clarify for those who might be quite new to this conversation, what exactly happens when we pump more and more CO2 into our atmosphere? What happens when the climate changes and gets warmer? Yes, okay. Well, let's start with the basics. So you've got a lump of coal, right? You feed it into a coal-fired power plant and burn it, and the carbon in that coal combines with oxygen to make a volume of CO2 which is nearly four times larger than the coal that went in because the oxygen's heavy and big, so it goes up. So it goes up into the atmosphere, and it will sit in the atmosphere for some a century or more if we don't get it out. And while it's up there, what happens is heat radiation comes from the sun, hits the surface of the planet, turns into a longer wavelength of heat, and it then the CO2 molecule sort of vibrates as that heat energy hits it, and it reflects some of the heat energy back to the surface of the planet. So it acts a bit like a blanket. You know how a blanket interferes with the heat energy we're radiating out of our body? It tends to trap it and then allow the heat to come back. It's a very similar process. It's a slow process. It's, um, it's more complicated than that scientifically because you know, that particular aspect of it warms the temperature a bit, but then the warmer air can take more moisture in it, more water vapour in it. And that water vapour is a very powerful greenhouse gas. So increase the amount of water vapour in the atmosphere and you really have a, a big engine for change. You speak of this in terms of absolutes, and we know that the scientific community is sure that the planet is getting warmer and that global warming is happening. And yet, there are still some elements in society, there are people in our government, who don't believe that climate change is a thing. I know. Well, there's people who still believe the Earth is flat. There's people <laughs> who believe that we never went to the moon. I mean, you, know, you can never convince everyone of anything. And in some ways, that small percentage, that less than 10%, uh, we have to move on from that. And um, people can look at the risk on the balance of probabilities. You know, We're now at a position where we say, okay, the risk of not doing something is pretty big, right, if the scientists are right. What's the cost of doing it? It's actually cheaper now to do it. It's cheaper to generate electricity from solar. So why aren't we doing that? Why aren't we moving to electric vehicles, which are getting more cost competitive? You know, why aren't we moving to concentrated solar thermal technologies for industrial heat? All of these more natural processes that don't involve all the downside of using fossil fuels. Um, it seems to me a no-regret strategy now. Tim, I just want to touch briefly on the work that the Climate Council does and the establishment of the Climate Council, which basically grew out of Tony Abbott's government firing you. That's right, yeah. We were, How'd that go uh, down? <laughs> well, you know, the Climate Commission was established by the Gillard government and we had... I mean, you can imagine how radical we were. We had the ex-head of BP Australasia on our board, you know, as one of the councillors. We had an ex-head of Prime Minister and Cabinet. I mean, these are hardly radical people. And we were just charged with going around and talking to people about the science of climate change and the consequences. Presenting the facts. Presenting the facts, which is what we did. But this was intolerable to some. And um, we were the first, the very first action of the Abbott government, even before they got into Parliament, was to abolish the Commission and to do away with our website that was being accessed by many, many people and which we put a lot of work into making sure it was scientifically accurate. So at that stage, you can imagine these radicals saying, oh, well, let's do something, <laughs> which um, I was amazed actually at the support we got from or every councillor to go out and say, well, let's keep doing this work. Let's set up a new entity to do it. And, but you um, didn't have any funding, but you no did funding, overnight. no plan, exactly. <laughs> so what did you do? Um, well, 
four days after we were fired, um, we had set up a sort of very rudimentary portal and way of supporting the council on a very rudimentary website. And so we went live and just said, look, we're still here. We want to continue the same work, the same group of people, um, but we need some public support. And that work is to make the science available about climate change, not to put out opinion pieces or to take a journalistic role, but simply to disseminate the facts and the science around climate change so that other people in the community, be they journalists, schools, be they anyone interested, can access it. That's right. And it just, you know, science is complicated. So it does take a special skill to retain the accuracy while you simplify and make it. Science is so complicated. I'm like, what? Half the time in this conversation. (laughs) So, So that's what we do. That's our core business. So... It was and it was successful. You know, we had um, a million dollars within a week. I think. So you amazing. actually crowdfunded the establishment of yes, the climate council. That's right, and no one had done anything like that before at that scale and for a permanent thing in Australia. So, so it was a it was an eye opener for me. Thank heavens, I had a number of younger people working with me. And the first thing I did was appointed one of those younger people to be my boss, who's Amanda McKenzie, a young woman in her 30s. And uh, I enjoy pointing out the various board tables I address around Australia. <laughs> but uh, yeah, but she's, that younger generation knows how to do things that we struggle with. But what that whole story proves is that there is, even if we lack the political will in Australia and certainly in the US right now to tackle climate change, we don't lack the will on a society level because there was a massive groundswell of support for the fact that we need to have this information and share it. That's right. And I've, you know, one of the things I learned when I was climate commissioner, and I talked to probably 20,000 Australians face to face about this sort of stuff in different forums, was that average people have a tremendous wisdom. There is a great deal of common sense in the Australian community. And if you give people half a chance to be responsible and to start making decisions or thinking about things, you'll get common sense answers. So uh, I do have that great faith. I think politics is misrepresenting and dividing us on these issues in ways that are completely unnecessary. We're being joined by all the birds on Heron Island. We are. <laughs> there are herons. Who else are there? White-capped noddies by the dozens out there flying around. There's rails on the ground. There are reef herons. It's a fantastic place. <laughs> it's beautiful. And we're not going to cut them out because they're the joy. Yeah, they are. for sure. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about what, um, in order to try to humanise this so that people who aren't necessarily engaged in the science can understand why this stuff matters to us beyond the fact that it's very nice to have a cover of Vogue shot on one of our pristine beaches. If our reefs die, we don't just lose beauty in the garden under the water or biodiversity. What else do we lose? And I'm thinking about coastal erosion. Well, there are so many things. I mean, the first thing we lose is a $5.6 billion a year tourism industry. And second is all of the fisheries and and associated uh, benefits that come from marine resources. The third is that this Great Barrier, it's called the Great Barrier Reef, is no longer an effective barrier for storm surge and so forth. So you get a lot more coastal erosion, a lot more impacts on our coast. The cost of remediating that is beyond calculation. It's enormous. So there is so much to lose. But beyond that, I mean, don't every one of us want to leave the world a little bit better place than we found it? Isn't that a common human aspiration? If you just ask yourself that question, that provides the answer, really, to why we should act to do something. I want to also talk, without this becoming too doom and gloomy, I do think it's powerful to understand the context of what we're talking about before we can look at how we can change it. Mm. Global warming also affects our oceans in other ways in terms of acidification, which I've been trying to get my brain around, (laughs) but also sea level rises. 
And you showed us yesterday some extraordinary pictures about what might happen just in one one very iconic, but just one spot in Sydney, which is around the Opera House. Yeah. And the idea that if we have this one metre rise... More like two or two and a half metres if we're very unlucky by the end of the century. And that could change our coastal topography completely. It will change it. Yeah, a rise of that extent would change it without doubt. You know, we're a coastal people. There's probably a quarter of a million houses and other buildings, you know, endangered even by a one metre sea level rise. And and you've got to think about it as a sort of shifting baseline, really. So it's not just that the water's one metre higher up the beach than it would be otherwise. It's that storm surges and flooding and high tides and so forth build on that shifted base. So all of the stuff that engineers have designed over the decades to be safe from flood water, all of a sudden aren't. Is global warming implicated in the rise of extreme weather conditions? Yeah, it absolutely is, for the simple reason that a warmer atmosphere is a more energetic atmosphere, right? And we know that from our own experience, just, you know, these big, warm, tropical storms. We can see the thunderclouds build up as the heat hits the surface and makes it work. You know, so those big heat engines, that hurricanes, they're just a heat engine that transfers heat from the ocean to the stratosphere, driven by extra heat. Rain, rainfall intensifies with a warmer atmosphere because you get more energy in the system. More lightning. Uh, more lightning. It's just a more energetic system. Yeah. Well, I think when I think of more lightning, I think more forest fires. When we're seeing, unfortunately, that is an absolutely real situation. Many factors affect when a fire will start and how big it will grow to. But one of the most important is the weather conditions. You know, if there's been a long dry spell and there's a lot of wind, we can all appreciate that makes it more liable to burn. And that's what we're seeing around the world. We're seeing forest fires of unprecedented extent in Europe, uh, North America and Australia, and South America to some extent. They're huge. And finally, just changing climates. And we were talking before about your early work when you discovered more than 30 mammals, mm. and particularly in PNG, looking at tree kangaroos. I'd never seen these guys. They look like little bears. <laughs> yeah, they're so beautiful they're and so amazing. Beautiful. And one looked like a little panda, that black and white one. Fantastic. And they're endangered. I mean, that's another thing I find I, I really am outraged at, the fact that I might be the only European ever to see some of those animals. Because I, I discovered them in the 80s and 90s. You know, no one's been back since. Can you tell yeah. us about that? Yeah, well, I worked in the islands of the Pacific for 20 years as a biologist and discovered something like 30 new species of mammals, you know, including four tree kangaroos, which are the most beautiful creatures. I mean, one does look like a small black and white panda, but they all live on mountain summits. And um, as the world warms, the, the, those alpine zones contract upwards. And eventually, those species will just run out of mountain. And if we continue warming the world to the extent we are today, by the end of this century, they're likely to be gone. So, yes, it is, it is extremely dismaying to think about that. Let's talk about potential solutions. I wonder if you might share with us the rather glorious story of walking down a Sydney street and your phone ringing. Yes, certainly. Well, I guess that was the start of a long journey for me. It was back in 2006. They answered the phone and said, hello, it's Richard here. I said, oh, yeah, hello. He said, would you like to come to my island to talk to my business leaders about climate change? I thought, ah, that Richard. Yeah, (laughs) sure. Yes, I certainly will. Had you ever talked to him before? Uh, no, I hadn't. I knew very little about him. But uh, since then, I've seen him several times. I've developed a great respect for him. So anyway, I went to the British Virgin Islands. And, we are talking uh, about Richard Branson. Yes, sorry, <laughs> I should have made that clear. <laughs> yes. And met met um, his family and uh, his business leaders there. 
And he was very interesting because at that stage I was chairing the Copenhagen Climate Council and had great hopes that we'd broker a deal on the climate issue in Copenhagen in 2009. Now, Richard was much more sceptical of that. And he said, look, I know people pretty well. That's how I've made my whole business is just understanding people. He said, I don't think we're going to come to this in time. He said, I'd, I'd like to do something. I'd like to have a plan B. He said, maybe I could offer a prize for technologies that could draw CO2 out of the atmosphere at a scale that would make a difference. And out of that idea came this Virgin Earth Challenge, which we helped him set up and one of the judges on. It's a £25 million prize for technology that can draw a gigaton of CO2 out of the atmosphere. Al Gore's on that panel. Exactly, Al Gore's. Friends in high places. Yes, indeed, yes. As so in we'll... he's got friends in high places because he's friends with you. Oh, well, God, I don't know about that. But anyway. True. But yeah, well, so, and we've had 11,000 entries to that prize and it's been amazing. Human ingenuity never ceases to amaze me. And you see these wonderful ideas, you know, making concrete, carbon negative concretes, for example, making plastics from atmospheric CO2 making carbon fibre from atmospheric so CO2. So drawing the... Yes, t- taking the problem, all of that CO2 in the atmosphere, and making something useful out of it. But how do we get it out of the atmosphere in the first place? Wow, there's some very interesting ways of doing that. I mean, one is just there's a machine, which I've seen, which is probably the size of a small house that can draw out as much CO2 as a thousand mm-hmm. hectares of forest. It has its own chemical technology to do that. Why don't we build loads of these? Well, exactly. What about seaweed farming, you know? If we could cover 9% of the world's oceans in seaweed farms, we'd be drawing down all of those 50 gigatons plus quite a bit and providing 200 kilograms of protein like fish and shellfish to a population of 10 billion people. You have a new book out about seaweed. Yeah, well, I was so inspired by seaweed because it was such a scalable solution and the industry is just taking off like crazy at the moment it's a 10 billion dollar a year industry but the growth is phenomenal and seaweed's been used for everything from surgical implants into knees to feedstocks for marine animals and even cows if you feed it to cows and sheep by the way they don't produce anything like as much methane so, really yeah i yeah. never knew that mm, it's, it's also a key ingredient in various beauty products it is indeed and i've had some beauty treatments and i don't know whether you can notice a difference but i certainly felt better after it so could seaweed be the magic, and there is no silver bullet to this issue, but could seaweed be a contender as the first-past-the-post solution to reducing carbon from the atmosphere? Yeah, I think it's going to be one of the bigger elements in the solution. It's just there's so many good things going for it. We understand the industry now. We know how to grow it. The big thing we need to do now is work out how to sequester it in the ocean deep. So, so, what, so just to explain, mm. if we were to plant seaweed farms... Yeah. What does that look like? Well, the one model that we have at the moment of an ocean-going seaweed farm that could sequester the seaweed is like it's a rack, 100 metres by 100 metres. It floats 25 metres below the surface of the water and there's a pipe that runs down 300 metres to the really quite cold, nutrient-rich water that's down there. And it just uses wave power and wind power to pump that water up and irrigate the crop. And the, the seaweed grows very prolifically because it's got all the nutrients from that water. And then you've got cold, buoyant water that sits on the surface and might even help a coral reef to survive a bleaching event, you know. There's potentially multiple winds with this. Where would we put it all? Well, the, the middle of the Pacific Ocean is not a bad starting point, probably. Um, you know, and, and the, what would happen with the seaweed, by the way, once, you know, you've grown your crop, we could cut off the seaweed that we wanted to sequester the carbon from, just let it sink to the bottom and it'll get to the bottom and then it's out of the atmospheric system. 
again, we're going to have to see political will because I think, and we talked about this before, while there is economic power in selling the seaweed crop, no one's going to allow it to sink and be sequestering the carbon under the depths. That is absolutely right. So we're going to need a carbon price to do that. You could still grow marine protein there and perhaps take a certain percentage of the crop, but you really, to deal with climate change, we need to be putting lots of seaweed into the ocean depths. All right. Idiot's Guide to Carbon Pricing. Yeah. (laughs) 101. Well, we tend to tax things heavily that we don't like. So cigarettes is a good example of that. Uh, There's lots of other examples of pollution where there are either heavy fines or or taxes. Um, And a carbon price is simply a a disincentive for people to pollute, really. And you could use that carbon price or some of the money from it to pay for people to get rid of some of that pollution. We had a carbon tax. Yes, we did. Yeah, it was very successful for three years. And um, within nine months of it being abolished, we'd lost all of the gains we'd made, sadly. Is that word tax part of the problem? And we talked before about semantics and the way that people don't like to buy into an idea that seems to be personally limiting their ability to prosper or to have a nice time. And tax is one of those words people don't like. This is a profound misunderstanding because tax actually gives us the ability to prosper. What we do when we pay our tax is to collectively pool our resources to do things and build things that we really need as a community. We wouldn't have schools, hospitals, roads without tax. I don't know where this idea that come from the tax is a bad idea. I think governments need to be highly accountable. And I would actually much prefer individual taxpayers to be members of citizen juries that would determine how we spend our tax and how much we raise and where we'd raise it. But we cannot have a civilization without tax. Do we need to rethink... This is such a big question. Are you ready for this? But do we need to rethink the way that we structure our whole political system in order to get this stuff, this show on the road? Yes. What we need to do is decouple the, I suppose, money from politics, really. And imagine this. Let's take this as a scenario. Say you or I decided to stand for Parliament at the next election and say, I'll stand on one basis only. I'll only do it for three years. I won't take any entitlements, as they call them, and I'll only have one item on the agenda, and that is to pass a law which says that every financial decision that goes through this parliament has to be passed through a citizen jury who will actually make the decision, and parliament will stamp that decision. So citizen juries could be 50 or 100 people who are empowered to have anyone appear before them. They can sit for a month if they want on an issue and given some latitude to decide how that money will be spent. You get a far better outcome. And if we stood like that, you say, I wouldn't vote on an issue in Parliament unless I had a jury decision to implement. God, I mean, often when we talk, um, just to bring this back to something I understand, is the kind of fashion space and we talk about how you need creativity to be able to produce great collections or great change in the industry. We obviously need great bounds in creative thinking to move the science world forward and the fashion and the arts world forward. But we don't seem to have that when it comes to the political world. The political world is the last world to change, always because the vested interests and power reside there. So change will be resisted. You look back in the 19th century to see what happened with the slavery debate in Britain or the universal franchise. I mean, how many people were jailed for suggesting we all actually needed an equal vote? How many women suffragettes were mistreated and jailed or fined for the same thing? So they're the last people to change. But we are now, we have the capacity now to imagine a better system and to implement that without a huge revolution, I think. People have to just understand that at the moment we're being treated like children. There are rulers and we are the ruled. And we, of course, we're disengaged. Of course, we're irresponsible because we're being treated like children. Mm. Treat people like adults 
and they will become responsible. I got to ask you, where does this come from in you, Tim? Where does the impetus to shake the system come from? I really think a lot of it comes down to meeting so many ordinary Australians and probably my time in New Guinea too, where I spent time with tribal people and understood that they have the, exactly the same capacities as us. And and there's incredible leaders and noble people in that society. And um, I just have a deep faith in humanity, I think, that's come out of a real lived experience, that if we trust the people, empower them to make the right decisions, let us all be ruled and rulers in turn, we'll get a great outcome. Mm. I don't believe in an old man in the sky, I'm sorry, I don't believe in God, I don't believe in a higher power, I don't think we can run the planet by using experts because they don't have to live with the decisions that they'll make. The one thing that can lead to a better outcome is ordinary people taking part in the system and doing their bit to create a better Making, future. shaping the system that they want to live by, which yeah. I think is interesting when we... I'm really interested in this idea of a kind of groundswell of... I'm thinking about it in terms of a new counterculture. But yes. I'm seeing yeah. it on the well, runway. Yeah. I know I'm always talking about fashion, no, but you no. know, <laughs> think yeah, we're talking, sure? <laughs> talking about Vivian Westwood on the runway, yeah. rallying people in support of climate change yeah. action. But I'm seeing it, obviously, in the women's marches on Washington, yeah. the response globally to the Trump administration, even just here to be in this extraordinary group on Heron Island with all kinds of people from different walks of life trying to engage in activism. That's what this is. We can change the world if we all decide to get together and do it. We can. And I mean, the, the fact is, we are all taxpayers, one level or another. And are any of us happy with the way our taxes are currently spent? Our right to have a say, to have proper representation as taxpayers has been stolen from us. And we need to get it back. And the only way I can see of getting it back is through this system, perhaps of citizen juries. I just want to finish up by um, talking a bit more about potential solutions. So you told us about this extraordinary competition that Branson set up, which I believe is being judged. The winner is next year, is that right? Well, we don't know. the entries have to reach a certain threshold, which is they have to demonstrate the capacity or ability to sequester a gigaton of carbon out of the atmosphere per year. And unfortunately, none of them are quite at that level yet. But I'm hopeful that over the next 12 months... Well, so there's um, no time limit on it. It's no, who can hit the target. That's right, yeah. Can business save us? I mean, it's interesting to me that in the absence of political mm. will, business is stepping in. If you look at what's happening in the US with the Trump administration withdrawing from the Paris Accord, what you found was business leaders and local governments to some extent or state governments mm. saying, we're going to do it anyway. We can do it. Imagine a world in which citizen juries make the money decisions and imagine running a business in that world. So all, all of a sudden, all of the people that you sell to are the decision makers. You can't just lobby people in Parliament to get your way. You have to actually act in a way that is seen to be fair and honest and with integrity because that's what people respect. So I think that if you make the political change, business will naturally change because you've empowered the very people who are suffering at the moment uh, without representation as business acts unethically. If you're listening to this, which I definitely would be, and thinking... Well, I'm no Branson. I don't know how to change the government. I give up. Sod it. I won't go to the Barry Reef. I'll try not to think about it. What can we do as individuals? Well, I think, you know, if you're in a position where you you are a respected member of your community and you feel you can take three years out to do something good, perhaps you could offer to stand on that basis of passing that or trying to frame up and pass that bit of legislation. If you're a lawyer who knows how to frame that sort of legislation, maybe you could combine with others to try to make it real. If you're just 
someone who is not interested in doing any of that but wants to support it, maybe if someone emerges from the crowd, you could support them. But if all this political change is too hard basket <coughs> stuff, what yeah. individual actions can we take to try to mitigate against the effects of climate change? Well, we have to use our purchasing power, virtually every decision in our life, really. We have to combine with other like-minded people and do the right thing. And, you know, we have achieved a huge amount. I was interesting, I was watching a documentary, which you saw as well last night, by Anna Rose, about a, a sceptic and Anna Rose going around the world. She's Just, a powerhouse. She's she founded amazing. the Australian... AYCC, Australian Youth Climate Coalition. She's amazing, and she's now working with farmers uh, around the country, but... Um, you know, that was only six years ago. And I looked at that documentary and thought, my God, the world has changed in those six years. And it's funny, watching it brought back the pain of working in that very difficult period six years ago where we looked like we were losing the, so the ability. this is a documentary which we will share um, a link to. You can see it on YouTube. It was made for the ABC. And the premise is that Anna, as a young climate activist tries to persuade Nick Minchin as a climate sceptic politician towards her point of view and vice versa, and it's gold. Yeah, it is, and it takes you right back to that terrible world of pre-Paris, really, how difficult it was. When more people were sceptical, when the science, when more people were saying maybe it's not getting hotter in here. Yeah, that's exactly right. Just denial. Denial was the big thing. You don't see as much of that now, thank heavens. So back to that thing, like, what can we do? Is it about, okay, use your dollar for good, but is it as simple as... I mean, I, I battle with this idea that it's very difficult not to be overwhelmed by giant issues like this when you feel powerless. And I know that people will listen and say, well, I care about this. What do I do? I don't have the wherewithal to go and start my own political campaign. What can I do? I know hints and tips are so lame, <laughs> but yeah. in this context, I think they'd be good. So is it about switch to renewables yourself? Is it about carbon offset your flights? Is it about don't fly? Is it about... It depends so what much. Is it? it depends so much on people's individual capacities. You know, if you're a, a student who's living on a, a very meagre stipend and, um, you know, in student housing, you can't do much. I mean, you might be able to take your own LED light globe and replace the one in the ceiling and take the LED light globe with you when you go. So you can't do a lot with your purchasing power because you don't have much, but you can be a great activist and do things and imagine things and implement things that older people can't. If you're an older person and you do have that discretionary income, then maybe you should get solar panels on your roof or buy a hybrid car or whatever you can do. But ultimately, we have to ask ourselves, what is right? What is the right thing to do? And I think if you ask yourself that question in context of your children and future generations, you'll find things, you'll find ways within your capacity to make a contribution. I actually do like that idea that we can all be activists. The word activist has sometimes been a sort of slurred term. Who You know, it's a grotty left-wing loony trying to annoy everyone. But I'm embracing that term. I like to call myself a fashion activist these days because I think there's great power in it. It's a cool thing to be. And if yeah. we can make it cool... And that's back to fashion. But if we can make this stuff cool, more people will want to copy, <laughs> which is good, right? The, the question to ask, you're absolutely right. The question to ask is who's trying to make you apathetic? Who is it that wants you not to be an activist, Ooh. but to be an apathetic, just passive consumer? You know, And if you ask that question, you'll probably find you'll become an activist because people are trying to abuse your perhaps naivety in some ways or you know, lack of thought about stuff and, and you know, the forces that be want to use you to maintain their grip on power and the world as they want it shaped. I will just ask you, how would you define yourself? If you had to pick a word, I mean, you do so many things. 
Well, I'm an ecological historian, so I'm interested in the world, but I'm also, I suppose I'd call myself an anarchist in the true sense of the word, not these corrupted senses we have, but of someone who believes that humanity has a, a real value and that people working together can do amazing things, that, um, that we don't need a power structure of involving nobility or, you know, the ultra-wealthy or whatever to lead us, that we ordinary human beings can do a lot. And protector of the tree kangaroos. Yes, and pre- indeed, yes. Well, and thank heavens I've been able to do a little bit in that area as well. Thank you, Tim Flannery. <laughs> thank you. Oh, it's getting hard. My parents feel that I'm defending Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in, best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis. So I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you Because I love you